Hi, welcome to the Wellness Doctors Podcast with Dr. Lorena and Dr. Vanessa. We are both medical doctors who talk about how to optimize health and well-being so that you can be empowered to make better healthy choices, enrich the lives of people around you and join us in the evolution of healthcare. Hi, Vanessa. Hi. How are you? Good. So you just got back from Melbourne, from your farm. Yeah, spent two weeks there and uh, it was really amazing. Well, it's technically not Melbourne. It's um, three hours outside in the countryside. And it's in a town called Bright. Yeah. Which is like the perfect name for a holiday Bright and sunny and... Lots of things to do in nature. I could just spend hours watching kangaroos jump across the front lawn. It's amazing. <laughs> and goats. You have goats there too. Yes. Our neighbors decided to be, you know, <laughs> economical. And instead of buying a lawnmower that burns through petrol, we just bought two goats and it just they eats just everything on the lawn. <laughs> yeah. You just have to make sure they don't eat things that you don't want them to eat, like laundry and you know plastic hoses Mm. (laughs) but do they also um make goat milk from them or are they are they the type that you can get milk from i don't know they're quite young and they're so cute they they come up to you and then they just rub their heads against you and then you you sit down and then they come over like a dog and just slap themselves over your your legs (laughs) and then you just scratch them and they they just love it yeah they're so yeah. dog-like. Those, those, those pictures are so awesome. I can see why you actually want them for pets here. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would be a bit strange to have goats in Hong Kong. And they're very noisy. Yeah, you, I don't think your neighbours would be happy about that. No, they sound like someone's abandoned a baby outside the church front door. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> they don't want, definitely don't want your neighbours to think that at no. all. <laughs> But yeah, our, our neighbors are going to get chickens, so we'll have fresh eggs. Um, yeah, have vegetable patches, uh, you know, plant bo- planter boxes going. And um, you also have um, ducks there, is that right? Yeah, they're wild ducks. So technically you can't eat them. Oh, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> and they probably don't lay eggs where you can find them. right okay they're safe from us (laughs) they are very wild then (laughs) yeah but they yeah they just they cross the road they hang out you know and what else did you do while you were there uh i went hiking on a 23k hike i went swimming in the rock pools uh we went climbing one day we went cycling um you also have a and I saw you also have a bow and arrow. Yeah, so we set up an archery range at the back of the house, so we're doing some target shooting. Is that is that quite um, therapeutic for you? <laughs> it's very therapeutic. I think both archery and rock climbing are therapeutic in different ways. So in archery, you really have to control your breathing, mm. and you're just completely focused on one tiny speck that's 30, 40 meters away. Um, and in rock climbing, the only thing that's going through your mind is, please don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also a great activity to do it with your partner or a friend. It's a real test of 
communication skills because <laughs> often <laughs> you can't see the other person and so you're relying on you know yelling or tugging at the rope or <laughs> intuitively figuring out what they're trying to do mm-hmm. um so there can be some frustration especially when you're four hours on a baking rock but uh yeah. it's great fun awesome that sounds like a great trip it was it was so relaxing um i could repeat the whole thing again for you know two to four more weeks and still not get bored wow and but you do the but so you do go very fairly regularly don't you try (laughs) (laughs) um which brings us to um whilst i was there i was still able to get some work done so i was seeing clients online and we're about to launch something online, aren't we, Marina? <laughs> exactly. That's right. That's the whole reason why we're exploring places for us to go to that's not just in an office or in a big city, um, but it will allow us to help other people while we're actually um, nomadic. Yeah, and take a very heavy dose of our own medication to be in nature, you know, to have fun. Be active, to incorporate yeah. movement, but also... Yeah. Um, mental challenges and um, so that's that's why it brings us to our podcast today to say that we're launching our website called Ananta Wellbeing. Yay! Yay! (laughs) It's a big thing for us because it's been almost a a year in the making that we've had this concept of offering wellness um, consultations online because we see that a lot of our clients you know by the time they get to doctors they're already quite ill but a lot of what they can do with lifestyle um, is much easier. You know, it doesn't really need a full, you know, tertiary care, you know, doctor consultation to get them to feel better. So wellness consults are something that we think would benefit a lot of people because they can, you know, take very simple, easy, actionable advice that they can do at home and, you know, integrate what they're already doing with maybe a bit more direction. Yep. And and also I think because a lot of the times as um, people have various different types of conditions, they would want to incorporate some lifestyle strategies because often um, they do show a supportive benefit with whatever type of other conventional treatment that they're having. But I think the difficulty for a lot of people is that they don't really know where to go. Because if they go to their conventional doctor, they sometimes don't get the advice they need or even worse, they get their ideas get poo-pooed. Yeah, and also most conventional doctors don't really have the time to spend with um, their patients and talk about other things like stress management, sleep, diet, nutrition, movement. Um, and frankly, because also part of our medical education doesn't really incorporate those areas. And, and in particular, what particular specific uh, recommendations can people can people do yeah so that's the reason why we decided to launch the web we decided to launch the website is to help as many people as we can while we're traveling and while we're doing other things um yeah so that's that's one of the reasons and the second reason is to also help other practitioners who may be um wanting to incorporate other lifestyle strategies for their clients as they have heard of the benefits, but they're not quite sure where to start. So they're able to present um, anonymously their client's case to us um, and ask our advice on the various different types of conditions, whether it be chronic pain, whether it be mood disorders, 
um, or whether they're working with somebody who um, has hormonal issues uh, and part of it is affecting their compliance with things. So we'd like to be able to help as many kinds of people as we can. wellness program and the other is the clinical case case review so the first one would be for anybody who wants to ask for um, holistic advice and the second one is more for practitioners who would like to incorporate some lifestyle strategies for their clients so check us out it's at www.anantawellbeing.com we'll see you there hopefully yay so to pick up from last time, we talked about IBS. That's right. So we went through the diagnosis of IBS and some of the investigations that we would do for IBS. In this episode, we actually want to talk a bit about how to manage the symptoms of IBS and hopefully build a resilience in our gut health. Yeah. So uh, let's start with what to do if we have... IBS, diarrhea. Okay. So I guess with it might not just be specifically IBS, diarrhea, but any kind of IBS, we would want to eliminate the foods that we've identified um, that could be triggering um, intolerance symptoms or allergy symptoms. So um, things like wheat, dairy, um, corn, eggs, um, also foods that have a lot of MSG or preservatives, um, any kind of food basically that's processed. So we want to eliminate those as well. Foods that are high in sugar, um, that would be really important. And um, we probably then think about what to add in to or what, what types of things to focus on to reduce the symptoms. So what are the rationales for wheat and dairy, for example? Why do we want to eliminate those? So wheat contains something called gluten. So it's a type of protein that is quite large and the digestive system finds it very difficult to digest. So people with IBS generally will also have problems sometimes with their stomach acid or issues with their digestive enzymes because they tend to coexist. So if there's somebody who is also very anxious and they're eating in a hurry, then they're not chewing their food, the digestive process becomes um, weakened. And so these food proteins can actually trigger the immune system and cause inflammation and motility problems. Okay. And what about things like soy and corn? Is it just that they are GMO or is there something more to it? Is it the way that it's farmed and the pesticides we use on it? What is it with soy and corn that so many people are allergic to? Well, not allergic, like intolerant to. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to soy and corn, there are probably other types of fibers perhaps that are in them. Um, that some people don't tolerate very well because there may be unusual bacteria that ferments these foods. What about lectins? Is it possible that we're not preparing these um, lentils and seeds and nuts properly so that um, the lectins or the what they call anti-nutrients, uh, anti yeah. yeah, that is actually quite inflammatory also to the gut? 
Yeah, so I think if we actually looked at the traditional way of preparing things like nuts and seeds and legumes, um, they're generally soaked um, before they're actually cooked and prepared. So the process of that actually releases enzymes in these foods. So they're pre-digested when they're soaked. Um, and so it's probably not always necessary to rule them out. It just really depends on how the food is prepped um, more so. So some people might be okay with, you know, home prepped um, corn and soy, but if they eat it as part of a packaged or processed food, then it may cause them problems. Yeah, or if they go to a restaurant and they're not preparing in the traditional way, then they might have a reaction there while what they have at home might be something that they prep properly. So they mm. then may not have reactions. And yeah, so the other thing about dairy is um, forgot to mention last time that um, there's actually sugar molecules in dairy called lactose. And yeah. um, 70% of the population actually doesn't have the enzyme called lactase to break down the lactose in dairy. So when you have... And that's mostly Asians, right? Asians, yeah. some of you know, Africa, the, I think the highest um, number of, like, po- of the population that can tolerate dairy and lactose is, you know, people in the Netherlands and Scandinavia where, you know, lactase permeates can be up to 98%. But yeah. in Asia, it's pretty much everybody can't deal with lactose. But then we see so many people still drinking milk, you know, all <laughs> kids are fed milk because it's meant to be healthy for you. Well, also, I think the idea of lactose intolerance isn't absolute. So we still have certain enzymes that can digest the proportion of the dairy. Um, So it's really about the quantity and how frequently are you having it. So if you're having one large quantity, then some people may get symptoms. But if you're having the same quantity over, say, three or four hours or throughout the whole day, then you might not actually have symptoms. And is there a difference between, say, raw milk and pasteurized UHD milk? Is it possible that raw milk still contains some enzymes that help us digest the milk? Yeah, so raw milk will have the enzymes that help that. So I guess the question is how how can we get raw milk? Because I'm not and aware. And how safe is it, right? There's yeah. a reason for pasteurization. <laughs> so it's all this I'm not to aware. navigate. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I'm not really aware how we can access it here in Asia. So maybe it will be a food trend that happens at some point. So definitely keep an keep an ear out for that one. Yeah, keep my own goat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm waiting for that goat to uh, become an adult goat. <laughs> Perhaps yeah, on your farm one other, day you can use. <laughs> the other thing about dairy is that people say, "Oh, you know, I'm lactose um, intolerant," but that doesn't necessarily mean they can tolerate the protein in the milk because people don't, un- you know, necessarily understand that there are two parts to it. Well, three parts really. There's some fat in the milk, but the protein can also be a problem. Protein like whey or casein. Mm. Yeah, so I think the protein also could be something that causes um, abdominal discomfort for some people. Um, so it's really a matter, especially I think um, when you try and take protein protein powders like whey protein, which a lot of bodybuilders um, use a lot of. Um, so that sometimes can actually be a reason why people have IBS um, and bloating. So we need to work out, you know, have they introduced any new supplements into their diet? So that's one thing. Um, that we want to look into as well. But it's such a dilemma because everyone's touting grass-fed whey protein as really high in nutrition and glutathione and all these amazing nutrients that you can get. You know, yeah. But at the same time, if you can't tolerate these foods, then you, you're quite restricted to what you can eat. 
So I guess the, the thing about eliminating these foods is that we don't want to eliminate them forever. We just want to eliminate them for a period of time until we can do other things that will heal the gut lining. So mm. definitely Which then brings to... us to how do we heal the gut lining? Okay, we can't just eliminate the food. We still have to eat something. But what yeah. happens then? Yeah. So that's the tricky part. And that's the part I find that a lot of people don't realize and they just eliminate foods and then they just neglect their... Go on a more restrictive diet and end up with chicken mm-hmm. and rice. Yeah, so it's not ideal. And um, so when we talked about um, IBS diarrhea, one of the things that um, can happen is that our gut cells often require a lot of energy. So they're called enterocytes. Um, And to feed these enterocytes, we need nutrients such as glutamine. So glutamine is an amino acid that's most abundantly found in muscle tissue. So we actually see a lot of um, bodybuilders, again, take a lot of glutamine because it gets turned over quite a lot. But also our enterocytes actually require glutamine for energy. What about short-chain fatty acids? Does our gut lining require those? What is short-chain fatty acid? Yeah, so short-chain fatty acids such as butyrate, which is often touted as um, also a fuel source of our gut cells, enterocytes, they're actually made from um, fermented products from our gut flora. Can we eat them? Yeah, so you can get them from places like different types of grass-fed cheeses, like ricotta cheese, um, grass-fed milk, butter. You can get those from... Those I've heard products. that butter actually comes from the word butyrate. Well, the, the same oh, Latin right. root. Oh, okay. That's an interesting one. That's a good one. Yeah. The butter <laughs> butyrate. <laughs> yeah. So glutamine is one. What else do you find helpful for healing the gut lining? I guess something to reduce that inflammation, right? If it's all raw and unhappy. So if you've got inflammation there, then foods such as aloe vera are really soothing. Um, So, you know, when people talk about using aloe vera for their skin or sunburn, it's kind of the same effect that you have in your gut lining. Mm. Um, You can also use spices like turmeric, which has also got really great anti-inflammatory properties. So you add a little bit of turmeric into your food. Um, Actually, there's another thing. So there's slippery elm, right? So that's often included in the ingredients for like a gut, um, like a gut supplement, you know, gut healing supplement. So we were talking to uh, someone in Australia and they actually grow the bark, like the tree, the slippery elm tree. And he was telling me how to make it. So you, you scrape off the bark, you know, you put some water in it and then you mush it around and it becomes this sort of almost like the the liquid, like the gel substance you get from the aloe vera. Okay. It was really interesting and it's sort of like a brownish color. Um, but, what, you know, have you tasted it? No, I, I want to. I'm going to ask him for some <laughs> next time because all, all the time we see these things, especially in Hong Kong, you don't get, you know, access to the actual plant they yeah. always only come in in, in a capsule so yeah. it's really interesting that you know he didn't know anything about wellness it was just sort of anecdotally someone said try it and it's really helped him so what was um, he using it for uh gut right okay. so gut pain reflux um you know essentially so- ibs but he didn't know the the, the terminology for it but he sort oh, okay. of figured it out you know he went on his own elimination diet like we said yeah. um, he's cut out drinking you know that was a big part of it um, started using slippery elm 
um, yeah, so I told him, you know, for the, you know, try a bit of acid uh, and um, ginger or, you know, add some aloe vera. It's, it's almost more um, natural to get it from the, the original source the plants, rather than, yeah. yeah, than taking the capsule form of it. You know, we think that we can yeah. extract everything, but we're probably extracting just a tiny fraction of the whole plant. And when you take a plant form, it has more synergistic effect. There's an entourage effect. Yeah, and also um, I'm reading WebMD here, and it basically says that's also useful for gout, rheumatism, cold sores, ulcers, abscesses, sore throats. Heals everything. Um, and basically everything that's inflammatory. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think that's, that's the beauty of eating the whole food um, is that you're not just getting one particular ingredient. You're just getting a whole bunch of other things that are nutritious and helpful yeah. um, for the body. So. Okay. The other what thing... about um, things like abdominal pain and IBS? Because a lot of people get cramps and it's very debilitating. Yeah, so sometimes I actually find that um, the pain can actually come from the sensitivity of the nervous system and also the inflammation, obviously. So that's why it's so important to have those foods that are anti-inflammatory. Um, but, you know, things like ginger, that can be really helpful. Mm. Yeah, because they do modulate the um, pain receptors um, in our gut and uh, they also help with the motility because sometimes you can have spasms, um, kind of like a headache in your gut and something called the 5-hydroxytryptophan receptors are involved in that. That brings us to why uh, doctors often in the conventional treatment give antidepressants because they help to modulate the serotonin receptors. Yeah, so if you have a sad gut, they give you antidepressants. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the interesting thing, isn't it? It's the mechanism that we've now discovered. And, um, you know, obviously there are certain drugs that they've produced that um, have this modulating action. But, you know, I think it's also useful to, um, and gin to, to have things like ginger because, they're so health, they're, they're helpful, but health benefits. You can have them in your stir fry. You can have them. Um, I put them in, in my smoothies. Yeah, smoothies. Or you just put hot water and a bit of lemon. Yeah, there's just so many amazing ways of, of having ginger. I just think that um, it's, it's great. Um, yeah. The other one coming to um, going, going back to plants is actually peppermint oil. Yeah. And that's really great for gut pain as well. And um, you can actually have them in capsule form. And the, but you want to get the ones that are actually enteric coated because what you want to do is have them before the meals. Um, do you burn and, like peppermint burps afterwards? Well, I guess it just depends, right? Because if you're actually um, not getting the enteric coated ones, then you could be in trouble. As in like it burns or... Yeah, so it does burn. So you don't want to be taking any other form except for the enteric coated one. Mm, yeah. What else could be helpful? What about things like probiotics? Because there's some controversy between, you know, in, in probiotics for things like IBS and SIBO, and some people say it made them feel worse, and some people say it made them feel better. 
Yeah, well, it's an interesting one because I, I think that if you actually take probiotics and you feel worse, then perhaps it's an indirect sign that you may have SIBO, which is small bowel, small intestinal bowel overgrowth. But if you actually take the probiotics and you feel better, it's probably more a large gut issue. Um, so kind of sometimes you can use it um, as a way of trying to assess uh, the difference between the two. Um, but, you know, studies do show that they improve um IBS symptoms, but I don't think we're quite able to identify the specific strains um, of probiotics. Although I have to say that um, for IBS-C, the constipation type, an E. coli probiotic called Mutaflor has been shown to improve symptoms. Mm-hmm. So what about VSL? To... That's another similar kind of probiotic. Yeah, so I think VSL is more for um, patients who have the more inflammatory bowel disease right. um, type. So with sometimes, I mean, even though some people say IBS has some inflammatory component to it, they're probably not in the severe spectrum of IBD, which often is associated with autoimmune um, issues. So I guess it depends on the level of severity of yeah. the, the symptoms. I mean, just for a little bit of, um, you know, factoid, um, Mutaflor, which you mentioned, actually is an E. coli, and it's called E. coli nissel. Yeah. And how they found it was during World War One, if I remember correctly, um, there was a lot of trench warfare, and people mm-hmm. were dying or having really bad, um, you know, gut problems um, because of contaminated water. But then they found this German soldier by the name of Alfred Nissel, who seemingly was healthy and immune to all these diarrhea problems going around uh, mm. all around him. So they isolated this specific E. coli from his gut um, <laughs> and found that it was really useful. You know, it had anti-inflammatory properties. There was, you know, healing properties. Uh, it cured a lot of things. So they isolated it, grew it and marketed it and rather than calling it E. coli because most people associate it with you know the bad stuff <laughs> um, they called it Mutaflor. Mutaflor. yeah if you look at wikipedia it's E. coli nissel 1917 which was when you know the world war one happened <laughs> so what you're saying vanessa is that you we've effectively commercialized a strain of somebody's gut flora into a capsule and it's now being utilized as a treatment for IBS. Which is the 100-year-old version of fecal microbiota transplant. Wow. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. They figured and... this out before we had, you know, gut testing. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of people associate E. coli with the bad, bad kind of gut flora that gives us gastroenteritis. Yeah. Um, or food poisoning, but actually there are, you know, and that's the reason why bacteria can be good and bad and they're different depending on the strain. So, yeah, I think that's um, that's a really interesting piece of information there. So and I have a, another second piece of interesting information, which is hopefully not terribly upsetting for people. <laughs> um, ideally, you're not having meals. But in ancient Chinese, by the 4th century, um, there was a researcher, like a healer, um, who used what he called yellow soup to treat his patients with diarrhea. So um, essentially, it was like the soup 
the soup was made from like a diluted version of someone's poop. Oh. And it was administered orally. Oh, okay. I think I'll just stick to the capsule. <laughs> I hope I don't know how doing that right it now. Was, but hey, you know, he figured out that the stool, whatever component it was from a healthy person, seems to help the the sicker person. Well, I guess it's not unlike, you know, the modern day times now that we've got these fecal microbial transplants. It's just that it's going up the other way, you know. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But going back to IBS, we don't have to take such drastic measures. We do have modern day inventions and treatments. Yeah. And simple <laughs> strategies, you know, simple, simple strategies like fiber, for example, you know. I mean, generally, I think a lot of people, um, you know, in the in this modern day, are not getting enough fiber uh, from their fruits and vegetables, and I think that's also one of the factors that affect gut motility. Um, so, when you talk about fiber, there's two types: there's the insoluble fiber, which tends to form the bulk of the stool, and also aids in motility. So, if you look at the Bristol stool chart that we talked about last week. Um, that's what insoluble fiber helps to form. Um, and it also helps to manage blood sugar levels and aids in digestion. And you can get it from uh, foods like apples, citrus, fruits, beans, nuts, and seeds. Um, so one of my favorite uh, recipes to make for something like that is actually stewed apples. With figs. With figs, yeah. And I love figs because um, figs actually feed your E. coli. So The good ones. Yeah, the good ones. So, you know, how, how good is that? So yeah. that's what I love about um, this recipe. And then the second type of fiber is called the soluble fiber, which is kind of like a gel-like form. Um, and that actually you can find in things like oats, barley, lentils, nuts, seeds, and peas. And cognac. And cognac, oh. Didn't well, know. not cognac as in the alcohol. Cognac as in uh, the Japanese version of that kind of tasteless gel-like yeah. uh, substance. So it's spelled K-O-N-J-A-C. <laughs> yes, or J-A-K. Or J-A-K. Um, yeah, <laughs> not, not cognac, the alcohol. Not Just the alcohol. Repeat, not the alcohol. Not the alcohol. <laughs> we don't uh, want people drinking alcohol. Which contains glucomannan. Yeah, I love that. Really I love eating one. it. I love the texture. I love that it has no taste, so it can actually soak up any sauce you put on it. And, yes. you know, zero calories, but it fills you up and it helps your gut. So, but you got to watch for that one, don't you, sometimes? Because if you have too much of it, then you can actually get the opposite effect. Well, of- I think that's an issue with people with SIBO or IBS is that, you know, they know that they should get more fiber, but sometimes they don't tolerate it very well. Because yeah. if they haven't resolved the, you know, the gut dysbiosis or overgrowth and they're feeding their gut flora, they're actually feeding more of the bad stuff potentially. Yeah, so I think that one is quite more specific to people with the SIBO um, version of the IBS, isn't it? Yeah. But generally, most people who don't have SIBO tolerate that very well. Yeah. It's just... It's just a matter of finding out which types of fiber helps you more. Yeah. And yeah. So rotate around those few fibers and see what happens. And what about things like bone broth? You know, like it's become quite a bit of a, 
Is it like a fad because a lot of people are doing it, or maybe? But in Asia, everybody it? drinks brown broth. It's it's a thing. Like grandmas make it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're making I had it, it now. I, I, I started eating, you know, I, and then now it's like, whoa, it's a thing. You know, they're charging so much for this <laughs> when you, you can, can go down make... to the butcher and buy some, you know, yeah. old bits of bones and just boil it. <laughs> Yeah, so I like to get some beef bones, with fish a bones, meats, fish bone, chicken bones. Um, it's got lots of um, amino acids in it. It's got minerals like magnesium, calcium, potassium, and lots of collagen. Yeah, lots of collagen. So those are the things that actually you know heal the connective tissue of the gut. Um, and speaking of collagen, um, one of my favorite recent forms of collagen is actually um, beef tendon. I've always loved beef tendon. I love that texture. <laughs> yeah, and if you actually, you know, make it in the traditional Chinese way with your parsley and you slow cook it and then you've got your, I don't use soy sauce, but I use liquid aminos, um, put the Chinese spices, the five spices into it. Like that's just, just smells amazing. It goes with like steamed vegetables. Yeah. And the great thing is you can make a whole batch of it and eat it over time. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, you know, there there are other things, you know, other ways of collagen. There's other uh, types of collagen. If you don't like the taste of beef tendon or you're a little bit squeamish about tendons, then you can also take collagen peptides in powder form. Um, there's a lot of those around as well as a supplement. Just add it into your smoothie. You can put it into your congee. Um, lots of ways of having collagen. Instead, it, it, actually, we had beef tendon salad, remember? Yeah, that was the first time <laughs> I made it. That's a very Asian confusion dish. Yes. But it was it's, great. It's a, yeah, it's a confused Asian dish. <laughs> because yeah. it had like, put, like, you know, Japanese sesame dressing on it, you know, make it very Asian. And you know what? Next time we should put things like... Um, you know, a bit of cranberry in it, like, you know, something with tomatoes for, like, the vitamin C because you want more vitamin C to help the collagen absorption. Yeah, so that would be fun mm. next time. <laughs> what about chicken feet? That's the other type of, type of collagen. Yeah, it's it's a very – it used to be a very popular dish, right, at dim sum restaurants, but I I seem to see it kind of fade out of – popularity you know things like tripe we used to have a lot as kids yeah uh, chicken feet you know yeah bits and pieces you know just eating the traditional way is very head to tail I think also one of the issues is that there are a lot of sauces that go into these dishes in restaurants so yeah. a lot of the sugars um, msg msg preservatives colorings. yeah so you know if you actually look at the traditional recipe it's a whole lot of sugar in that so i think if we started making these um at home and i often find that um even like with bone broth if you make them at home you actually get a better quality of the broth so it's the same with making like chicken feet dishes i you know have them in soup like the traditional way with your goji um your lotus seeds and your almonds and make them into a, a chicken feet broth so if we make these things at home and um it'd be great to actually um have a couple of these recipes on our blogs um <laughs> yeah <laughs> eating for a gut health asian way 
And I think that's another thing we should look at because a lot of the information we do get is coming out of primarily Western countries like America, you know, Australia, UK. And so it's not so adapted to the Asian diet. You know, it says eat things like Jerusalem artichoke. It's like, it's not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so, but we do have our you know, types of foods that, you know, are, are similar to that, right? So I guess it's a matter of converting it. And I guess these days there's so much fusion going on that, um, you know, we probably take bits and pieces of both the West and the East um, to make food. Yeah. Well, we'll be posting more food recipes on our Ananta Instagram. I'm looking forward to that because that's making me hungry right now. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about an antibiotic which I'm very curious about. It's called rifaximine because when people hear the word antibiotics, they run a mile in the opposite direction because probably antibiotics was what caused them to have a lot of gut issues in the first place. But rifaximine is a bit different. Yes, so tell us a bit more about that. So rifaximine is actually very poorly absorbed so it mainly stays in the gut lumen in the in the hole in the lumen so it doesn't get absorbed into the rest of the body and it seems to work differently than other antibiotics because it kind of like almost selectively kills off the bad stuff but it's got a like a pro gut healing property you know, it kind of helps to adjust the balance of the gut flora to shift it towards the healthier side. Yeah, so I guess that means that it does a bit of both. It's kind of like a, um, what do you call it? Um, it's like modulating? Or... Yeah, modulating. Yeah, flora modulating. Yeah, and it's got anti-inflammatory properties. Um, and because it's not absorbed, it just comes out the other end and it doesn't affect the rest of the body's um, microbiota uh, systems. I guess the downside of that, though, is that it is quite expensive, isn't it? Yeah. So in Hong Kong, we can get it, but it's the brand one. And, you know, treatment costs are reasonably high. You know, you think your, your, your average course of antibiotics is maybe you know, $10 US or $20 US, this is going 10 plus, 10, 10x of, of that. Yeah. So you really, if you do take it, you want to be doing the other type of strategies um, to also heal the gut lining and restore some of the functions. Um, and actually also was... forgot to talk about um, digestion and chewing because that's one thing which a lot of people don't do is chew properly. Yeah, or, because or we're always eating in a rush. Yeah, so, you know, digestion actually starts in your mouth because um, a lot of the t time it takes for the enzymes and the hydrochloric acid to be released um, actually isn't immediate. And the chewing actually needs to take place first before that process starts. Actually, as a psychiatrist, I would argue that digestion starts in the head because... <laughs> If you think about the food, you know, you're already salivating. Your brain is already sending signals to, you know, push up more insulin. It's a catholic insulin response. And even if you just think about, say, eating, you know, a sweet or a candy or, you know, biting into a citrus lemon, you're already salivating. So the mind is amazing at making the body anticipate food. And I also, also like when to smell my food. 
yeah, you know, use all your senses, see it, smell it, you know, ideally, you know, not touch it, but, you know, eating with your fingers tastes so much better. That's why. Well, some um, traditions, you know, like the Burmese people and in India, India they eat yeah. with their hands. Yeah. And the second argument I have for the head is when you're in a parasympathetic state, you're in the rest and digest mode. And so you actually receive your food in a more relaxed manner. And there are studies looking at when you eat, when the same person eats the same food, but then one is in a very stressed out state and the other is in a more relaxed state, it actually turns on different types of genes in your body. So you want the genes to be turned on properly and you want to be in a, a relaxed state when you eat the food, which is why, you know, taking a moment, people say grace. I think even though some people may not be religious, um, but there is almost some ancient wisdom to saying grace or just being thankful for the food in front of you and taking that moment to do a couple of deep breaths before you eat. Yeah, I think it's often very much forgotten in this day and age because we're always in a rush to go somewhere else. You know, food just becomes a nutrient. Um, it's it's just a fuel source. It's But it's actually much more than that because it gives us everybody's information. You know, there are yeah, it's a bunch of chemicals in the food um, that affect these genes. And um, even the process of the parasympathetic nervous system is what's needed to secrete the stomach juices and the enzymes. Yeah. So chew our food you know, consider some kind of treatment, gut treatment. So other than rifaximine, what about non-drug treatments for, you know, restoring that balance in the gut flora? What is your, what are your favorite herbs or supplements? One uh, kind of supplement that I do often use in combination with the ginger is an amino acid um, called 5-HTP. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 5-hydroxytryptophan, just because yeah. we talked about how um, the 5-HT receptors are important as part of gut motility um, and sensitivity, but also something um, called carnitine, So because carnitine is actually also important for the gut nervous system. Um, and I've often found that a combination of these nutrients, whether it's IBS constipation or diarrhea it seems to really help with the frequency of the stool it helps seems to have to modulate it really well Hmm. do you tend to go for a lot of kill protocol i generally don't um because i feel that um the gut flora it's about balance so i'm not entirely convinced that killing is necessarily the best way especially if it's for a long period of time because you know even if they're herbs they are still potentially toxic to good flora um yeah they're not you know they're not that selective yeah so i may sometimes try if i actually see um that the person has an overgrowth or you know they have parasites or um they do have um candida for example um, although it's not entirely killing it's more um, keeping the bad yeast static um, and also kind of like mowing the lawn just keeping it tidy yeah I think my <laughs> yeah I think I feel that that's probably my philosophy I mean other people may disagree and you know I know some herbalists they they 
so do the the herbal concoction of um, the antibacterial concoctions really well. So, you know, perhaps I'm not as um, fine tuning with that. Um, so yeah, but I'm I open feel like you suggestions. Know, you don't have to be that aggressive sometimes too, right? Yeah, I I don't think you have to be, and um, I mean sometimes they can be toxic because the herbs herbs work by um, the mechanism of hormesis, so they do stress the body. So you got to be very careful, and you need to know what you're doing. So you need to talk to a really good herbalist. And then sometimes if you kill off a whole bunch of bugs at the same time, they release their toxins, and people get more side effects from it. They get these die off reactions. Yeah, so the Germans call it Herxheimer. Yeah. Do you have a story behind that term? Uh, <laughs> not today, but okay. let me look it up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can look it up and give you a bit of history on that one. So tell, tell us a bit about the die-off symptoms. So die-off symptoms can come in many shapes and forms. I've had patients say anything from, you know, my migraines have flared up to I've got skin outbreaks or I've got really terrible um, gut symptoms. So it could be gastrointestinal or even extra um, extra gastrointestinal as well. Um, But most of the time, it almost feels like a really bad flu. Yeah, You know, you feel quite ill, you know, you're hyperventilating, you're flushing, your heart's going really fast, Um, maybe you get chills and fever. But essentially, that's the same as if you have a viral infection and it's in your blood system, it's when they are active, right, that causes the chills and rigors. It's when they are eating or when they're feeding or when they are procreating or dividing. Um, But then they're going to come in cycles because sometimes they're more dormant. Um, so when you take these, um, whether it's conventional or herbal antimicrobials, um, you're kind of killing them off in spurts, right? Each time you take it, like three times a day, you're killing them off in spurts. And so you kind of have to hit the bugs when they're metabolically active, because if they are sleeping, they're not really taking up the herbs as well. Um, but when they do, then they get killed off and essentially they're, they're just cells, right? So the cells break open and whatever is inside gets released and part of that is toxic to us so our our immune system sees it and generates an inflammatory response and you get these um, die-off effects so typically um, I see patients experiencing that kind of die-off for a couple of days and then after that they generally start to feel an improvement in their symptoms Um, but I also see some patients who um, actually that reaction lasts for much longer so have you had have you got any I strategies for those patients it's because their detox pathway so the 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 drainage downstream is a bit blocked because our body does have the ability to get rid of toxins it's doing that all the time whether we're sleeping or we're active but if somebody's detoxification system isn't able to deal with that you know increase in toxic load then it gets backed up and it takes them a lot longer to to handle it and so sometimes if that happens i would say you know dial back on the the herbs and maybe take some glutathione or some nac or something that helps them flush out the toxins first and what about binders do you find the things like binders helpful yeah so sometimes i give um charcoal Mm -hmm. 
or clay, like bentonite clay or zeolite clay. Um, but then it, it starts to become complicated because some things have to be taken on an empty stomach, some things have to be taken with food, then you have probiotics and prebiotics and you know herbs. And so it becomes quite overwhelming. If you look at some of these protocols, you know, you're taking sort of things 20 times or you know 20 tablets over multiple times during the day and yeah. so over time I feel that when I first started out treating SIBO I followed um, the protocol from Chris Cressa really religiously and it ended up being you know I needed multiple pill boxes to, yeah. <laughs> to, to contain all the pills that needs to be taken and over time, I realized, you know, it may take a bit longer, but it's just more manageable. Like, not everybody can dedicate, you know, 24 hours a day just to take pills. You know, they have families, they have a job, they have other responsibilities. So now yeah. I try and make it a little bit more simplified. And I still get good results. It just means that you have to educate patients on expectations. Yeah. Um, and also selecting the right patient for you know, whether they need a, a, some sort of killing herbs to just to, you know, make it easier to understand, or, you know, they can just do with very gentle rehealing and just, you know, you giving them makes know, sense prebiotics because, and probiotics. Yeah. It, and it does make sense because if you see a person, for example, who has very similar symptoms, but they generally are on a very whole food diet and, um, they're doing all those things like chewing their foods and they're not eating on the run, then they might be able to tolerate um, the, the killing kind of um, treatment much better than somebody who, for example, has been eating processed foods, they're still constantly stressed, and um, they maybe have had a history of multiple bouts of antibiotics followed by food poisoning. So someone who I kind of call these people more the fragile types of patients, you may not want to go with that straight away. You may want to do some type of anti-inflammatory foods, um, some type of gut healing foods first before you um, do anything. That yeah, make sure be... that detox pathways are opened yeah. up. Mm. Um, and some people, if you, you know, if they're already eating quite a lot of fiber, fiber is actually a really good binder. So yeah, if they just exactly. have, you know, in the natural diet, they already eat fiber, then you don't have to go over the top with, you know, multiple types of supplements and, you know, binders. Yeah, skip and the binder. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. What about things like um, melatonin? Because we always think of melatonin as you know, the, the jet lag supplement, but how does it work in IBS? I think you might know a bit better about that one. <laughs> well, well, I looked it up and, you know, some people kind of get a side effect from melatonin and their gut yeah. improves. And so I was interested. And so apparently it has analgesic effects and it regulates the motility in the gut. Mm. Um, and I think it may be because when you're sleeping, it's more restorative. And also when we sleep, we're not digesting our our food you know you, yeah. you, you're technically fasting when you're sleeping and that's when the um, motor migratory complex comes in yeah uh, which is the sweeping wave of movement to get rid of all the rubbish and so part of the reason why people get, keep getting recurring SIBO I think is because they they kind of go for the kill phase um, they did a bit of gut healing but they either haven't looked at the underlying cause of the SIBO it could be toxins I mean for myself it was a lot of mold and other you know uh, 
issues <laughs> that's going on or yeah. they just have poor motility right yeah. or very sensitive um, um, gut lining and so prokinetics is something that could be helpful and if the melatonin is helping them you know improve motility then you're reducing the risk of the SIBO coming back because even though you know rifaximine seems like a great antibiotic and it works between 70 to 80 percent of the time but the recurrence rate is reasonably high you know like mm. almost half the people recur so you can't just keep going in with more antibiotics each time. So it's about figuring out the underlying issues. Which is, you know, the whole principle of the functional medicine is that we're not trying to use these supplements as symptom treatment. We want to use them perhaps to buy time so that the person can do the strategies that are treating the underlying triggers and causes. Um, and so it goes back to understanding or working with somebody who is able to identify that uh, for each individual because there are so many causes and there's so many reasons and triggers, so many other things that could perpetuate um, the symptoms. One of them is, you know, like you mentioned, it's not just about simple supplements. Some people have kind of like a leaky valve between the small and the large intestine. So your large intestines is supposed to have a lot of bacteria to ferment the food. Mm. And when they stay there, everything works. But sometimes because of this leaky valve, which is meant to be in a one-way direction, now things are moving upstream back into the small intestine. And so if they have an ileocecal valve issue, sometimes getting um, a therapist who knows how to do a specific maneuver like a manual therapist. Kind of, yeah, to kind of readjust that. And there's also qi zhang, which is like a Chinese technique. Um, and sometimes maybe just massaging the gut to release a lot of the adhesions and, you know, improve motility of the gut is helpful. So there are other things we can do than just taking pills. Agree. Yeah, it's all interrelated, isn't it? Yep. What about, um, you know, other things while we're talking, psychological treatments, because there is actually quite strong evidence for things like cognitive behavioral therapy, for hypnosis or mindfulness-based therapies that could also help in IBS. Yeah, like you said, um, the way that we start digesting is actually from our brain. So a lot of the um, symptoms of anxiety, depression, um, all these things are also associated with IBS and um, the nervous system from our brain is also connected to our gut. So sometimes if people actually have so much chronic pain or um, the fear of going out because they um, don't know if they're going to lose control of their bowels and that becomes a trigger for them, it can cause a vicious cycle. So it's important to identify um, who the different types of people who may actually benefit more from cognitive behavioral therapy. I think that's what you're referring to. Mm -hmm. And I have actually seen uh, really great results with these patients, mostly with the um, more diarrhea type, because um, often they, they have accidents and it's very distressing. And so there's a lot of anxiety about going out, a lot of anxiety about not being near a toilet, um, where they uh, in places where they don't have quick access, so that then becomes a pattern because they live with that for a long time, and so the body starts to automatically react that way, and it sends a signal and makes them more anxious. Yeah, and I think 
you know, it, the body is trying to help us, you know, it's trying its ways to uh, support us. But sometimes there's just a bit of runaway inflammation or runaway fear, and we get stuck in this loop. So it's trying to identify for individuals, where is that, you know, lowest hanging fruit for you that you can start and break that cycle, that, that vicious yeah. cycle of pain and fear and, you know, uh, you know, then your gut becomes more sensitive mm. and then you're constantly being fearful of foods around you. You know, you read more things on the internet and you start avoiding Creating things. more anxiety. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, it is very distressing. I, I understand because, you know, most of us have had it, yeah. uh, myself included, but sometimes it also is acceptance, Right. Mm. So every now and then I do get a, a little flare up now, you know, I, my gut is not perfect. And it's about, OK, can I try and identify the trigger? Mm. And if I can identify, identify the trigger, can I do something about it? And yeah. sometimes if you can't do something about it or, you know, for example, if I do open water swimming and I love my swim group, my choice is, well, do I cut up my social outlet in order to protect my gut or do I just mitigate it by, you know, taking some binders after the swim? And right. even if it's placebo, I feel like I'm doing something. <laughs> well, yeah, it's all about trying to manage the condition with, you know, your lifestyle so that it's less limiting um, socially and also being aware of the triggers for each individual and then having a strategy there, whether it's having certain foods that you prepare yourself with, that you're, Make sure that you're more compliant with your chewing or the quality of your food um, while you're in a pretty stressed out situation because that's really when you need it the most. And also not being afraid of um, asking for support and help from therapists who are trained in this area who are able to, um, in a very non-judgmental way, um, help you help people um, take the steps to find out what the triggers are and teach you some of the more positive mindsets and behaviors that can help to send the correct signal to your body. Yeah. And, you know, when, when you get these symptoms, your brain goes into red alert mode and thinks, oh, my God, it's, it's happening again. It's all terrible. But actually taking a moment to think, well, I've had this before. It didn't kill me. And I know how to make it better. It'll just take a bit of time. And being patient with yourself and not blaming yourself for anything, right? And it will pass. And then you feel better again. And then you just have to understand that, yeah, it could happen again in the future. But now I have better tools to deal with it. And it's more of an acceptance that, you know, life is up and down. Health is up and down sometimes too. Yeah. And it's about um, also I often associate gut health with barriers and boundaries, and I think that um, from an emotional perspective, if the body is sending signals to you that it's not functioning well, it's also time to reflect on whether there are things that um, you're doing is uh, whether you're just overloading your plate, whether you're saying yes too much, um, but you don't really have the time to give, give to these projects. I think it's also a sign that the body is saying, look, we've got to manage our time better or we need to learn to um, have boundaries and respect our own boundaries 
Um, I think those those are important things to consider also. It's interesting. If you don't have good emotional boundaries, then could that mean that you don't have good gut boundaries and you end up with leaky gut? <laughs> well, I'm sure somebody is working on that because um, one of the things is that we know that um, the perception of stress actually influences the hormones that get released in our body. So those hormones also happen to impact on our gut immune system. So in many ways, if we are in a situation where we perceive it to be stressful, um, that's going to have multiple effects on different parts. And because we're all genetically different, um, it's sometimes like the weakest link, isn't it? So if your gut health is something that is the weakest part of your system, that it might be expressed there. Yeah. I I I definitely know my, my gut is my weakest link. So. <laughs> Great. So I think we've covered most things with IBS. If anyone has questions, we now have a website that you can send us an email. Yeah, and make some comments, suggestions on any future topics that you would like to listen to, and we'll try our best to cover them. Yeah. And if you would like our personal advice, then you can opt to have a consultation with us now. And we look forward to hearing more from you. Yay. So until next time. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. You can find us at anantawellbeing.com and follow us at anantawellbeing on Facebook and Instagram. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review to help other like-minded people find us. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and is not intended to treat or diagnose any medical condition. This podcast and its producers disclaim any responsibility for adverse effects that result from the use of this information. Opinions of guests are their own and are not endorsed by this podcast. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions. We do not make any representation or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Both producers and guests may have direct or indirect interest in the products and services mentioned. If you think you have a medical condition, please consult a licensed physician.